Hello, here we are, season two of the Wicked Land podcast. I'm here with my most important guest ever, a man who's very important in the fields of vaccine and vaccination. He's a pediatrician who started the uh, Philadelphia Hospital's vaccination. Yeah, so the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Vaccine Education Center. Vaccine Education, okay. And uh, he has been uh, sat in on vaccine congressional hearings, and he has been uh, on the Federal Advisory Committee to CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control, which is where we go to to find out what do we do about the next disease and pandemic. So we are here with Dr. Paul Offit. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and taking time for your very invaluable work schedule to sit down. So we're going to go a couple things today for the listeners uh, out there and just people who are concerned about the state of the world today with pandemics and viruses. And uh, again, then also the subject of to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. And this, what I think personally is a very dangerous, uh, ludicrous uh, movement uh, of the anti-vaccination movement, which as we'll get into has been going strong for 30 years or so across the world. And, uh, Dr. Paul Offit is going to give us some feedback on why these uh, ideas are dangerous and uh, uh, try to get a, a grounded scientific perspective on uh, what you should know and, and, and not know <laughs> or not listen to regarding vaccination and, uh, you know, the day that we're living in. So right now in the world, we have uh, pandemics are, are, are more and more of an issue, uh, viruses and going back to 1918. You know, that pandemic, it was the flu influenza epidemic, killed 33 million people in the first 200 days, which was more than AIDS killed in uh, four years. And uh, today they're saying if a pandemic came about, it could call, call, kill 300 million people, uh, you know, in today's numbers. And uh, there's a lot of people that are part of the anti-vaccination movement. They're constantly saying, oh, this is all conspiracy to get vaccine. It's this and that and it's money. But the fact seems from the numbers I read is that According to, you know, World Travel, the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, uh, we would lose $3.5 trillion in the world from a pandemic. So uh, what you've been doing, your research, um, what, what is the state of pandemics today? Are we prepared for a zombie virus? <laughs> I mean, not a zombie virus, but again, that's, you know, for the horror, uh, but that's what people are thinking. Is, is there a zombie apocalypse? Is, is that going to happen? Is there a pandemic that could be that dangerous and that that insane. We have Zika has been globe hopping uh, now for decades. A lot of people think Zika is a recent thing in Florida with mosquitoes and everything, but it's been around since 1952, correct? So uh, what, what, are, what are the things we should be scared about today and, and alarmed about, and, and what are we doing to prepare for these, these, uh, these issues? Okay, so, so typically when people talk about pandemics, they talk about influenza virus, which is a slippery virus. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the virus is able to uh, mutate or change from one year to the next, so much so wow. that, that immunization or natural infection the previous year doesn't protect you the next year, hence the need for a yearly vaccine. Okay. So everybody in the United States, as recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, are recommended, who's over six months of age, are recommended to receive a yearly influenza vaccine to protect against these yearly seasonal epidemics. Wow. Now, about three times a century, the virus changes 
changes so much that that the very small percentage of the population has ever seen anything even remotely like that virus before. And that's what we mean by pandemic. Pandemic is just another word for worldwide epidemic. Wow. And then it sweeps across the world, causes, you know, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of cases, and then can cause millions of deaths. So we had a pandemic actually in the United States in 2009, you know, which caused, you know, almost 100,000 deaths and, and uh, from influenza. And it primarily affects the extremes of age, the very young in the very old. And although we have a vaccine to prevent it, I mean, sometimes the virus surprises you and, and changes so much so that we that the vaccine isn't effective, which really at some level happened last year. I mean, last wow. year in the United States, we had starting to emerge at the end of the year, around February, March, April, there was a particular strain called H3N2 that wasn't in the vaccine. We had an H3N2, but it was a different so-called clade, and so it didn't protect you. And as a consequence, wow. then, the efficacy of that vaccine, the effectiveness of that vaccine was only 30%. Now, when you're talking about millions of cases and tens of thousands of, of deaths, you know, 30% efficacy is something. But it's, it's still, uh, it's a tough virus. It's a slippery virus. I actually trained in an influenza lab at the Wistar Institute a number of years ago for a few years, and uh, the person who was the head of that lab said something I'll never forget. He said, if you want to have a research career that lasts for the rest of your life, study influenza. Wow. Because you'll never figure it out. So even since 1918, is that the same exact virus we're facing today? Is it the same exact... No, so pandemic strains are different. Okay. Um, so the three or so uh, pandemics that we've had this century, all those are different strains. But, okay. but the, 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 what makes them all similar is that the, uh, a critical portion of the population has never seen anything like it before. And not only the U.S. population, but the world's population. And that's why it sweeps across the world. Wow. So you recommend your your uh, your research and what you you know your the community you're part. You recommend like the flu shots are really effective in combating this new strain of influenza? Is right. that what it's meant to keep us uh, immune from or protect us from? Right. That's, That's what, what a flu shot is, this particular strain. That's right. So so in 2009, we anticipated a pandemic. So we did, did make flu vaccine in advance of the pandemic. But again, it's, you know, flu's virulent and the vaccine is, at its best, the vaccine is about 40 to 60 percent effective. So that it wow. decreases your chance of suffering or being hospitalized or dying. It doesn't eliminate that chance. It, it gives you a better chance of surviving. But again, it's not like, say, something like the measles vaccine or, or other vaccines that are much more highly effective. It is effective to some extent. So when people argue, again, which is part of this anti-vaccine movement, just the tip of the iceberg is, oh, you just said it's only 40, 60 percent uh, effective. Why should I get it? What would you say to people saying that? Because that gives you a 40, 60 percent <laughs> lesser chance of getting the disease. <laughs> makes sense. It makes sense. So... Um, we, we, so we have that. That's just the influenza. So w what is Zika looking like right now these days? Like how worried should we be about Zika? Is it something, is it true? I mean, there's so much rumors. Oh, I think it's from mosquitoes. Is that true? How can you get Zika and how worried should we be about Zika? Well, so, so Zika is not a U.S. phenomenon. Uh, okay. Probably, primarily because we don't have the vector, i.e. the mosquito here, that's capable of transmitting that virus. So until that happens, I think Zika is probably not going to be a problem in the United States. But it is a problem in the world. And, and so um, could we make a vaccine to prevent Zika? Yes. I mean, is there interest in doing that? Yes. So I guess we'll see what happens. What What was the um, the circumstances in Florida then a couple years ago where there was the Zika issue? What was happening 
Yeah. Right. So, so um, it's this is the downside of global warming. I mean, you start so you start to see in say Florida, Louisiana, Texas, you can start to see you know Zika virus come up into that area. So it is possible actually that I guess over time, especially with global warming, that you could see it extending further into the United States. Um, it's it's a virus that um, is 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 not terribly um, dangerous unless you're pregnant. I mean, if you're pregnant, okay. then um, really throughout pregnancy and you get infected with that virus, you have about a 13 to 15 percent chance of delivering a, a child who has severe permanent birth defects. Oh wow! Now, when you say global warming is a huge element, I, I mean I can understand, but in terms of uh, uh, vaccination issues, what what is what is how is it affecting it? Is it winds is it oceans is it like why is global warming such a big element and why a disease or something like zika could come to america right because how is that happening right so you need the vector and the vectors you know like mosquitoes have certain sort of climate requirements and, and uh. so if we don't have those climate requirements here that those animals those mosquitoes will have no. trouble then okay and what happens is people who are travelers then bring that that virus back up into the united states and then it can spread to some extent oh wow and the fact it's been around since 1952, and it's it's a globe hop. Uh, so did, when it came out at, in 1952, were people aware of this in the scientific community, or was yes, the scientific community, but I think the general community. But it wasn't not, really, not until no. it really started to hit hard. Did we pay attention? Wow, wow. So now, just going off a little, not in a, in, in a condescending manner, but just for again, we're in the zeitgeist where people are obsessed with zombies, obsessed with the you know the apocalypse. So, I mean, what I've read as a screenwriter and researcher, so, like, a virus, it starts as a, a retrovirus infects via reverse transcriptase. This is what AIDS, HIV, and lymphus do, right? Uh, basically, and it hijacks the human cells. It begins toxin production in your DNA, right? Basically hijacks the DNA of virus. That's what really it's doing and turning it against you, so to speak? Well, so, so AIDS is, is an example. So okay. what makes AIDS um, particularly heinous is that um, when you're infected with HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus, the virus that causes AIDS, um, it reproduces itself in one particular cell type in your body, so-called T-cells, okay. which are a central part of your immune system. They're sort of the orchestrator of the immune system. So in, a, in one way that it's, it's particularly dreadful is that it really paralyzes your immune system. Number yeah. one. Number two is, although you make an immune response initially to the AIDS virus, an immune response that would eliminate that virus, the virus is pro, it's protein coat, it's surface coat, so-called glycoprotein, constantly mutates. So it's like you're infected with 100 AIDS viruses because it keeps mutating away from your immune system. That's why it can last for as long as it can last. That's why it can kill to the degree that it kills. Now we have antiretroviral uh therapies that are available that have, have essentially made that a chronic disease. So in a sense, that's been really? a success. You know? So does that, uh, something like that's a cure? So basically when it starts to hijack one cell, eventually affects more and more cloning that hijacked cell, so to speak, right? So yeah, yeah I wouldn't call it a cure. I would say that we have something that's yeah, made it no, a chronic. Yeah. It's sort of like the goal of cancer, really, in many cancers, to try and make it a chronic disease, if not completely eliminate it, at least make it a chronic disease, which is, is I think, what's happened here with AIDS. So is there an... an in, in all these cases, age or, or what have can't is there? There's no way to stop that cloning of that one cell once it's infected. Or is there any science that prevents that kind right, of right? So there are antiretroviral drugs. Yeah, that's what that, yes that, that have that work, but they they don't sterilize you. They don't completely eliminate that virus. I mean, they sort of make it more difficult for the virus, but don't eliminate it. It's uh, not ster so-called sterilizing immunity. Okay.
And, and, and now, given all this information, scientifically, like realistically, uh, you have something called encephalitis, which inflames the brain. And you have the way these viruses acted. Like, is there really a chance ever that there would be something similar to a zombie virus? Like, could it ever happen? Could could a, a, a virus mutate itself that you're dead, but encephalitis still keeps the brain active, that you have these basic motor functions? But you're, is that any science that could ever happen someday? But this would define zombie. <laughs> I mean, basically, The Walking Dead, uh, you know, the, in different movies, it's it's something carnivorous, it, it has basic motor functions, and it's eating, uh, attacking you, but again, you know, it's it somehow, it's, I'm just curious, you know, given all this information about viruses and things that can affect you in different ways, is there any possibility of this ever happening? I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm, I'm of an age where, for me, zombies were like, you know, George Romero. George Romero. That, that's that, where it goes Night back to, Dead. that idea, The Night of the Living right. Dead. Night yeah. Living Dead, which I saw, I remember seeing when I was in college, in, in a movie theater. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there was no rating on it back then, so you had no idea what you were in for. Roger Ebert wrote about it, that this is this little kids were in the theater screaming, terrified. No, I remember. It was, it was, it was my first date, actually, with a girl oh, wow. who, whose name was Faye, who eventually <laughs> became my girlfriend when I was in college, and it was our first date. So we're here... <laughs> We're Cambridge Cinema, right? This is in Harvard Square. We, we both go to this this thing. And, and there's one point, I don't know if you remember the movie, where the um, the ghouls who are out yeah. there, people have tried to sort of barricade themselves in the house, and there's this hand that shoots through yeah. and, and breaks with the board, and now it's, it's the hand sort of shoots through in the house, and this the girl sort of stood up and screamed, Look out, you asshole! And so I thought, you know, this is somebody that definitely has to be my girlfriend. <laughs> wow, and maybe it planted the roots, you know, for psychologically for why you wanted to study viruses and vaccines. So and I, that's an amazing story. But you're, this is, we're taking this from Dr. Paul Offit, who's an expert. You're saying zombie virus, very small chances. Not, not to my knowledge, no. Okay, I, I can relax now, and I think millions of people can relax. Um, so then moving on into the situation now where we're seeing people, uh, for different reasons, uh, are not believing in vaccination. And uh, we have just a couple incidences, December 19, 2008. We have a San Diego kid who's not vaccinated. He travels. He comes in. He infects Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, and 980 people, leading to a measles quarantine that has uh, is really effective because parents never gave their kids uh, MMR, uh, measles, mumps shots. Uh, we have February 17, 2009. We have a meningitis outbreak from an unvaccinated uh, Hib, or is that how you say it? Hib patients that, that kills one. And then we have 2008, 2009, we have Hib meningitis occurs in New York, PA, Oklahoma, and uh, kills four kids. And then we, of course, have this isolated community of Vashon Island, which I guess is somewhere in Oregon or Seattle. Yeah, I, think, I think it's off the coast of Washington State. Off the coast, and, and they have 48 cases of uh, whooping cough, which uh, has now jumped to 458 cases over the last couple of years, and, and uh, their whole population is considered below the acceptable chickenpox immunization uh, rates. And uh, so we have all these situations where unvaccinated, one unvaccinated child goes into a population and causes, I, I don't know, a mini pandemic, so to speak. So uh, what, what, what do you have to say to this? And uh, obviously the science is there that this is dangerous, but now this is now known as a herd immunity is the reason why you should be vaccinated. And a lot of critics will say, no, 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 that's not true. So what's your reaction when people hear this and they still are arguing, no, 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 that's just a rare case or whatever. 
Yeah, so for highly contagious diseases like measles, you need to have a certain percentage of the population immunized in order to keep measles virus from spreading from one person to the next. Now remember, in this population in America of over 300 million people, um, there are about 500,000 who can't be vaccinated. They can't be vaccinated because they're getting chemotherapy for their cancer. They can't be vaccinated because they're getting immune suppressive therapy for their chronic disease. They can't be vaccinated because they're too young. So oh. Less than six months of age, you're not going to get an influenza vaccine. Those people depend on those around them to protect them. Wow. There was a study done, actually, it may sound counterintuitive, but when you think about it, it's not. It was done as a measles outbreak in the Netherlands in between 1999 and 2000. And what it showed was one thing that makes perfect sense. You were obviously least likely to get the virus if you were vaccinated living in a highly vaccinated community. But you were actually more likely to get infected if you were vaccinated living in an unvaccinated community than if you were unvaccinated living in a highly vaccinated community, right? Because that highly vaccinated community protects you because vaccines are not 100% effective. No vaccine is 100% effective. Okay. So when people like some of the anti-vaccine people will say, what do you care what I do? You're vaccinated. That makes two false assumptions. One is that vaccines are 100% effective, which they're not. And two is that everyone can be vaccinated, which they can't. So, you know, when you get to a point, as was in the situations that you described, where a critical percentage of the population chooses not to vaccinate, that allows the virus to spread. To infect one, groups of people who can't be vaccinated for the reasons I said, or two people who got the vaccine but weren't, didn't happen to be, you were say 95% chance of infect of being protected, but not 100%. Wow. And so people, to that, I mean, I, I believe that and accept that, but I still have people I talk to on Facebook, social media, will still say, well, that's just one person or two people. You're, you're saying no matter what, by that one or two people not doing it, it's definitely, it's a dangerous incident, right? And then they'll argue, well, I didn't do it to my kids and they, nothing happened. That's a lot of the feedback I get is that, oh, well, whatever he just said, that's great, but I didn't vaccinate my kids and nothing ever happened. You know, and he's I, now I think, in I think I mean, so, so measles, when I was a child, which was, you know, in the 1950s, there wasn't a measles vaccine. So every year, you know, two to three million people would get measles, about 48,000 would be hospitalized and 500 would be killed by that virus. It was if you if you did if you were born for 1958 in this country, um, you got measles by the time you were 15 years yeah. old, and and the odds were you survived, but not everybody survived it, yeah. and it was it was a bad disease. Um, today, last year, there we had we eliminated measles from this country in the year 2000. Now you're starting to see it come back because come back. a critical number of parents are choosing not to vaccinate. Um, last year we had our biggest outbreak since the time we eliminated about 1,100 cases. Yeah. Um, but it's a population of over 300 million. I think people will say, well, look, I didn't get the measles vaccine and I didn't get measles. That's because only 1,100 people got measles. But keep doing this. Get to 2,000 cases, 3,000 cases. Uh. Also, if you want to be understand what it means to take this risk, I mean, you're playing a game of Russian roulette. Yeah. And it's not five empty chambers in one bullet. It's probably 100,000 empty chambers in one bullet. But there's a bullet there. Yeah. And if you don't believe that, just, just go online and look at some of these these, these parent advocacy groups like um, Families Fighting Flu or Meningitis Angels or the National Meningitis Association or parents of kids, so-called P-Kids, parents of kids with infectious diseases. All those parents tell the same story, which is, I can't believe this happened to me yeah. because until it happens to them. Then when it happens to them, then they become vigorous activists to educate about the disease or the vaccine. But you take a risk when you choose not to get a vaccine, and it, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a serious and I, I would argue more dangerous risk. Why take that risk when you don't have to? If vaccines were dangerous, sure, I get, then I get that choice. But they're not. They're safe. And so, so the choice not to get a vaccine is not a risk-free choice. It's just a choice to take a different and more serious risk. 
So given now this resurgence of measles, and we're seeing this again, I'm seeing it even in New Jersey, uh, what advice do you have for someone like my age, in my 40s? We got the shots as kids. Are, are, are we at risk? Uh, I've heard vitamin A, you should be taking your vitamin A. Or is there something like that people my age, 40 years old and older, that sh do we need to get revaccinated? Or, or what, what, year, what year were you born? 1976. Yeah, so, so you, were, you, you got one dose of measles-containing vaccine. That's, okay. So that means that you have a 93% chance of being protected against measles for the rest of your life. Okay. Had you been born after 1991, you would have gotten two doses of measles vaccine, in which case you would have a 97% chance of being protected for the rest of your life. Oh. But, but that's a great vaccine. I mean, it, you know, as a single dose, you have a 93% chance of being protected for the rest of your life. So that's good. So I think you're not someone who needs to worry, Frank. I mean, I was born before 1958, so I had measles, like everybody else that oh, I know. Okay. So I'm, I'm too, and protected for the rest of my life. But, uh, but you know, it, it's uh, for those who are choosing not to get a vaccine, knowing that we, the, we, we have not eliminated measles from this country. And frankly, if we have the same thing happen this coming year that happened last year, we will lose our status as a country that had eliminated measles. We will no longer become a, a, a company, a, a country in which vaccine, the, the virus has been considered to be eliminated. Wow. That's, that's terrifying. <laughs> Jeez. So uh, I guess we'll move on now to, uh, I guess, what I've read. It's in your, your books, Deadly Choices, Autism, False Prophets, uh, The Panic Virus, another book which correlates in your research is the blueprints of this anti-vaccine movement. Uh, it, it seems like it, it really begins the big date. Um, there's lots of things before and after this date, but uh, it seems like April 19th, 1982 on NBC, WCR, Leah Thompson does this report that says... Um, uh, people, uh, kids vaccinated with the DBT vaccine are developing seizures and they're becoming autistic. And of course, she has uh, uh, Robert, Dr. Robert Mendelson back all this up. And of course, I know from your books and other books I read that Mendelson was somewhat of a quack. And, uh, you know, from there, we then have Barbara Lowe Fisher. She watches this report in 1982. She believes that immediately from seeing this, that her son Christian has developed autism from having uh, after the fourth DBT shot. And uh, she then goes and, and starts um, the Dissatisfied Parents Together Council, which is a play on DBT. And then from there, it seems like it just starts growing bigger and bigger in this country. She goes to the you know Congress uh, with Senator Paul Hawkins. They start attacking the CDC. They start attacking uh, the Petrusis and Whooping Cough vaccine. And uh, it seems like she does a little bit of good in that she did modif got them to modify the Petrusis vaccine. That maybe there's were some issues, but it's now we're now what, what whatever this is 20, 30 years later, and she's heading the National Vaccine Information Center. And and, and since then she's just spreading a lot of lies uh, and using celebrities like Don Imus and uh, Jenny McCarthy on the Oprah Winfrey show. And, uh, you know, the most disturbing to me was that how she attacked uh, Dr. Ted Williams, who's the doctor for the deaf Miss America, and basically said that, you know, it was Ted Williams' fault that, uh, you know, Heather Whitestone, the deaf Miss America, was deaf. It came from DB DTP vaccine, when in fact, Dr. Ted Williams had been, you know, her doctor since a kid. Uh, she was deaf from hip meningitis. So when you hear so many people believing Barbara Lowe Fisher and, and you have this movement, uh, and and is there any anything anything of substance to anything she's saying or doing? Which I don't believe so, because I've looked at her website and everything on the website 
is a direct correlation. If you find a link, it goes right back to another article from the National Vaccine Information Center. It's so self-referential, it's ridiculous that as a researcher, historian, it's disgusting. It's an insult because it's like there's no non-bias reference. But when you have her leading this movement, is there anything she's found? Is there anything any of these, these people have found that you think, oh, well, that's interesting. You might have something there. Or is it like what I think, complete just lunacy coming from a very tragic place that autistic child, anger. Like I, I read in your books and a lot of these books, that the, the first reaction is, who did this to me? I need a bad guy. I'm going to pin it on somebody. I need an enemy. I'm going to pin it on a vaccine. So is there anything that she's found or anyone's finding in this movement that you're like, oh, that's interesting. There is a point to that. Or is it complete just lunacy that obviously, as you said, is just so dangerous to us as... Yeah, the nicest thing I can say about her is this. I, th I think what you're looking at at some level is, is the natural history of an immunization program. So mm -hmm. you know, when my parents were little, um, they were children of the 20s and 30s. They saw diphtheria as a common killer of teenagers. They saw polio as a crippler. Um, so you didn't have to convince them to get vaccinated, to vaccinate their children. Um, I was a child of the 50s and 60s. I had measles. I had mumps. I had German measles. I had chicken pox. I had all those diseases. I know what they felt like. So you didn't have to convince me to vaccinate my children who were in their 20s. Yeah. But my children not only didn't grow up with these diseases, they don't see these diseases today. So I think for them, vaccination becomes a matter of faith. I mean, why should I get a polio vaccine? Why should I get a diphtheria vaccine? What are you talking about? These are like people that have those, these are all like in these black and white pictures. Why do I need to get this vaccine? So I think asking the question is reasonable. I think you can, because now that the, the, the it shifted, the risk benefit ratio has shifted because we largely don't see these diseases anymore. These vaccines better damn well be very safe mm. because if they're not, then you could argue that the risk of the vaccine vaccine outweighs its benefits. So the best thing you can say about what you're seeing now, which is, I mean, as the immunization rates drop, you know, people become more concerned about vaccine safety issues, which is fair. I think that's fair. I think you should hold vaccines to a high level standard of safety because they're given to healthy children. So raising the question is fair. I mean, does the MMR vaccine cause autism? Does, you know, the thimerosal, this ethylmercury-containing preservative yeah. vaccines, could that cause subtle uh, neurological defects? Those are answerable questions. You can answer that question. I mean, the, the MMR question was raised by Andrew Wakefield in the late 1990s. The Lancelet publication, the Lancet publication of the paper. I mean, yeah, so that, that raised the question of whether MMR could cause it. Now, that wasn't a study. That was just a case series. In other words, here were, here were eight children who'd received the vaccine, who developed signs and symptoms of autism, presumably within a month of getting the vaccine. That was that paper. I mean, all that paper showed was that the MMR vaccine doesn't prevent autism, that you can still get the MMR vaccine and still get autism because MMR only does prevents measles, mumps, and rubella infection. It doesn't prevent everything else that occurs in life. But it raised the hypothesis. Could MMR have done this? Well, it's a testable hypothesis. You can look retrospectively at hundreds of thousands of children who either got or didn't get the MMR vaccine to see whether the incidence of autism was greater in the vaccinated group. That study has been done 18 times in seven different countries on three different continents involving hundreds of thousands of children. And so you, so, and, and, and the, the results have always been the same. You are not at greater risk of getting autism if you got the vaccine or if you didn't. There's two ways to interpret those studies. One, a reasonable way, which is to say that that association hasn't been found because it's not there to be found. Yeah. Or the second way, which is the unreasonable way, and frankly, the Barbara Lowe Fisher way, yeah. and the anti-vaccine people way, which is that there's a vast international conspiracy among hundreds of researchers to hide the truth all deeply in the pocket of the pharmaceutical industry. That's the way they interpret that, because they're conspiracy theorists. And I think in order to be an anti full-fledged anti-vaccine person, you've got to be a 
conspiracy theorists because you've got to deny a mountain of evidence. Uh, I, I, I totally agree because what I've read is it, when you go on to anything concerned with anti-vaccine on the web, not even just Barbara Fisher, they all then go into fringe groups of uh, pro-life, of uh, taking away our, our, you know, uh, taking away abortion rights. Uh, then you have, again, you go down the rabbit hole, especially on the National Vaccine Information Center website with Barbara Fisher. It then goes into all these conspiracy theories on her own website it, it, like far away from anti-vaccination it's about governments controlling us uh, vaccines are going to weaken you so that we can be put on concentration camps this is a FEMA conspiracy it's insane when you go down that rabbit hole to find out it gets even more and more ludicrous and then you also find a lot of Christian fanatical websites that are associated and linked and and I think I feel like that's that movement is playing on a lot of different ideologies and fears and, and, and then it gets people that aren't even interested in anti-vaccine because they feel this way about the government, they feel this way about a conspiracy, they jump on the bandwagon. So it's like, it's like you said. Yeah, I think, I think one way in which they've been successful is by making this an issue of choice, right? Doesn't it make sense? Shouldn't I, as a parent, have a choice whether or not to inject my child with a biological agent? Yeah. Shouldn't that be my choice? I mean, so, for example, people will say to me, isn't it true that you're pro-choice regarding you know issues of, of uh, abortion rights? And the answer is yes. I mean, I, I am pro-choice. But then again, when you decide to um, to terminate a pregnancy or not, that's an individual decision. When you decide not to give your child a vaccine, you're making a decision not only for your child, but for anyone with whom your child comes in contact. So then that question becomes, is it your inalienable right as a U.S. citizen to allow your child to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection? I think the answer to that question is no. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Those two things are not analogous. One is a private issue. The other is a public health issue. Which I think, it seems like that the, the recent movement with RFK Jr. seems to be moving towards that argument. That this should be, if you're saying pro-choice, okay, it should be a choice if I vaccinate or not. And, and so you would definitely say that this. So what, what do you do when you have that argument where you're saying, again, it falls into like, oh, the government's taking away my rights. And what I don't get, the schizophrenic side, it seems like the people part of it are these Hasidic communities have seen these outbreaks. But they seem to be on the side of I should have a choice. That makes no sense to me because they're seeing the effects of no vaccination and it's affecting them, but yet they still are are rebelling with RFK Jr. to say, no, 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 this this is like now becoming a sector incident like in New York or Cuomo where they're going to court saying, you're taking away our rights. It shouldn't be your choice to put your child in harm's way unnecessarily. It shouldn't be your choice to allow your child to be hurt unnecessarily and to allow those with whom they come in contact with to be hurt unnecessarily. That is not your choice. Sorry. You have chosen to be a member of society and, and you, have, you have certain rights and obligations as a member of society. I mean, you know, it's, there, there's, this, um, there's this old uh, film called uh, The Polio Crusade. Um, it was done by Sarah Cole Productions out of Harvard. But she, I don't know if you've ever seen this film, but it, it's it's really interesting. I mean, it, it's it's when you watch that film, you want to cry because the voices you hear in that film are sort of voices of society. I, you know, these are people who suffered polio, and they, they, they all you get this real sense of, of sort of community. You know, if you think my polio was bad, you should have seen what happened to Joe yeah. over here. And maybe maybe it's because polio was seen as a shared na shared national tragedy with the sort of the work by the National Foundation of Infantile Paralysis or the March of Dimes. Or maybe it's because we just came off World War II, which, which sort of, I think, gave us a much bigger community feeling, a sort of nonpartisan feeling. I mean, if you look at politics at the time, yeah. there really were Republicans and Democrats working together to 
try and make things better. Now it's not that anymore. It's no. just this sort of everybody's on their own. It's about the individual. And I'm sorry, you, you are part of society, and therefore you have a certain debt to society, an obligation to society. For example, in our hospital, um, we require everyone who works in our hospital to get an influenza vaccine. Require it. I mean, because and and if you if you choose not to get an influenza vaccine, you have two weeks of unpaid leave to think about it. And if you still don't don't want to get the influenza vaccine, you're fired. Why? Because you are choosing to take care of a vulnerable population of children, many of whom can't be vaccinated. I mean, does influenza come into our hospital every year? Yes. Can it can it be that a nurse or, or, or dietary person or environmental person, you know, who, anybody who can walk in the room could actually carry influenza into that room? Yes. So we should do, every, you've chosen to be among those those patients, therefore you have an obligation to those patients. I feel that's a microcosm of, of, of society. society yeah. Right. I mean, you, you're a member of society, you have an obligation to people with whom you come in contact. I mean, I got I, I got the influenza last year, vaccine last year, I'll get the influenza vaccine this year, and if you come into my office and you, for example, for whatever reason, are receiving a biological agent that makes you less uh, immune competent, like, you know, Remicade or, or something like that. Do I have an obligation to you? I do. And I think I should feel that obligation. Yeah. So how much of a population of doctors and nurses are you seeing that are unvaccinated? Is it is this a big issue? Well, not in this hospital. No. <laughs> you don't work in this hospital if you're, you're not vaccinated. No, I'm just saying, like, overall, are you seeing this is an issue where there are a lot of well, there, physicians and physician's assistants and that are really coming into the population? And if so, is that affecting anything? Not a lot. I think it's okay. a small percentage. But there was just an article in the, in the Los Angeles Times about an anti-vaccine pediatrician named Bob Sears, who, you know, is very, very lax about vaccinating his, his population. He's just sort of, you know, he just has these 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 uh, these weird notions about vaccine safety that are not supported by evidence. And, uh, you know, I think to some he's a countercultural hero, right? He's a guy who, quote unquote, speaks truth to power. And, you know, we all like that. And uh, we like the countercultural hero in yeah. the United States. America likes that sort of that renegade, that iconoclast. But uh, he's, uh, he only puts his children, the children with whom he, he's, for whom he's responsible in harm's way, unnecessarily. And so what are some of his, his arguments? Is it argue, similar he, arguments he, to... He has, he, has, he has false notions about vaccine safety. I guess he's just unwilling to accept the mountain of data showing that his notion about vaccine safety is wrong. Wow. And so do you find that... Have you, I, I've read in your book uh, that you, you've been attacked, you've been threatened. Oh, you, God, you, you know. God, so when you when have you had a chance to have panels with proponents of the anti-vaccine movement? Do you have discussions with them? Or have you had any interactions... <laughs> there's there's one woman who's who's an anti-vaccine uh, activist who comes to these advisory committee for immunization practice meetings at the CDC, and her name is Lynette Barron, B-A-R-R-O-N, and I, and I really like her. I mean, I think she's, I think she's trying to find some peace with 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 the, the side of science, and 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 she's a deeply religious woman. I think she believes there's good in everybody, and and she just wants to find some way of having this conversation, and for which I give her a lot of credit. But for the most part, I think anti-vaccine activists are conspiracy theorists who are very quick to hate, very quick to point fingers, very quick to see the other side as evil, very quick to do things like send hate mail, which I get pretty much on a daily basis. Jeez. And it's uh, you know it's just uh, I don't think I don't think much of them. Wow. 
And so you've never, you other than her, have you've never gotten a chance to have a depi- formal discussion. To, to what end? I, I mean, honestly, <laughs> here's the fundamental difference. You think it would just be falling on deaf ears, yes. basically. Yes, here's the yeah. fundamental difference. I think, I think it is perfectly reasonable to ask the question, could this vaccine have yeah. done harm? But if a parent says, I think the MMR vaccine causes autism, or I think thimerosal causes autism, or I think too many vaccines too soon causes autism, there is abundant evidence showing that's not true. First of all, it didn't make biological sense. But apart from that, now we have epidemiological studies that it's not true. So to not believe that means you're a conspiracy theorist, that you think everybody's in the pocket of industry and therefore they're not to be believed. Why have that discussion? I mean, it's like having, it's like this, the debating a Holocaust denier. I mean, the Holocaust happened. Yeah. We're a climate change denier. Climate, the climate is changing based on human activity. That's just the facts. I mean, why do we have to argue about the facts? I can understand arguing about the interpretation of facts, but you can't, you can't argue about the basic facts. Vaccines save lives, and they're safe. That's the base. Now, are they absolutely safe? No. I mean, can vaccines have some serious side effects? Yes. Happy to talk about that. Happy to talk about the true serious side effects of vaccines. I mean, the oral polio vaccine, which we use in this country between, I mean, up until the year 2000, from about 1962 to 2000, that vaccine could itself cause polio. It was rare. It, it occurred in about one per 2.4 million doses. But Albert Sabin's oral polio vaccine could cause polio. That's why we moved from the oral vaccine back to the inactivated vaccine in 2000. I mean, was that an unconscionable level of side effect? Yes. Could, could we have avoided it by just using the inactivated vaccine? Yes. Is that, was that a reasonable discussion to have? Yes. And there was a vaccine safety activist named John Salamone, whose son had gotten polio from the oral polio vaccine, who was a vaccine safety activist, but he was a real vaccine safety activist because he had a real issue of vaccine safety. I mean, that's not Barbara Lowe Fisher. That's not these other folks who have these false notions about vaccine safety for which there's evidence that refutes it. Yeah, oh, I, I totally agree. So uh, I think the other issue that I know for a fact from people I know, and again, I was a special education teacher, I have an autistic step uh, sister, uh, is this idea. They click on Google. The algorithm is just going by how many hits. So it goes instantly to uh, autism is caused by vaccines. It, it'll instantly take you, I think even if you did now, it'll take you first to something connected to Barbara Lowe Fisher or an Andrew Wakefield uh, paper. So uh, what 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 is the science? I mean, right now there's, there's such muddled things out there where um, I think there was one study that... Uh, the doctor had, um, there was some study that said thimerosal or the mercury in MMR, it definitely had some type of effect a little bit on autism or hyperactive. There was just different ratio that when it wasn't in a vaccine, they were less anxious or when they wasn't a vaccine, it actually, like that. those kind of arguments are, are a little out there, even for people who are completely, you know, research and are not anti-vaccine. So when you see stuff like that, um, I think it was John Heron, John Heron study, where he studied 14,000 kids with the MMR vaccine. And, and they just saw that also has this weird, there's just like a weird roulette effect to thimerosal, where sometimes they saw it affected make kids more anxious, other times they saw the opposite. So what, what's the, the perspective on that? So, so 
this, so, we thimerosal is an ethylmercury containing preservative that's been in vaccines really since the 30s, um, especially multi-dose vials, because you need some sort of preservative in a multi-dose vial, because when you continue to, to violate the rubber stopper, you know, with, with your needle and syringe, you can inadvertently introduce bacteria or fungi into that so that the person who gets the eighth, ninth, or tenth dose could inadvertently be inoculated with bacteria or fungi, which is what happened before there were preservatives in vaccines. Thimerosal is a gentle ethylmercury containing preservative. But mercury never sounds good. And certainly large quantities of mercury are toxic to the nervous system. It's been shown with the Iraqi fumigated grain disaster or the Minamata Bay disaster, certainly all true. Yeah. So is it, was it possible then that, that the level of mercury contained, ethyl mercury contained in vaccines was doing harm? Now remember, mercury is part of the environment. I mean, mercury is in the Earth's crust. It comes to the surface as inorganic mercury. It's methylated, becomes methylmercury. Anything made from water on this planet contains methylmercury. And in fact, including things like breast milk and infant formula. And children are exposed to far greater levels of methylmercury than they would ever get from, from ethylmercury in vaccines. And methylmercury, being a, a smaller molecule, actually has a, a much longer half-life, about 10 times longer than ethylmercury. In any case, fair enough. Mercury isn't good. Is it possible that there's too much mercury that was in vaccines? These were easy studies to do for these reasons. One, Western Europe took thimerosal out of vaccines by the early 1990s. We had Canadian provinces that, that used thimerosal-containing vaccines right next to Canadian provinces that used the same vaccines that were thimerosal-free. We took thimerosal essentially all out of all vaccines given to young children in this country by the year 2000-2001. So it's very easy then to compare these groups to see whether or not there was a greater incidence of any sort of mercury mercury toxicity, any sort of developmental delay, ticks, learning disabilities, whatever it is that you were concerned about with mercury. When you do big studies like that, you know, you find sometimes that, you know, something falls on one side or the other. So there was one study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that males had an increased incidence of motor ticks if they'd gotten thimerosal-containing vaccines and if they hadn't. But girls who got the thimerosal-containing vaccines had a greater incidence of, of ex they, they actually functioned better, so-called executive functioning better. That was so, 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 so either, so in order to believe that mercury caused ticks in males, you also had to believe that mercury made girls smarter. <laughs> neither of which were true. I mean, over time, I think neither of those things were true. So yeah. what happens when you do big studies and you take small numbers out of large databases, sometimes you find statistical associations that don't hold up over time. That, that was the problem with that, that study. And then we have Andrew Wakefield is still out there kicking and screaming, where I saw a recent YouTube, which was listed in, in people saying, oh, you got to see this. So the one video, he mentions a New England Journal of Medicine uh, report. Uh, it was something concerning uh, hip meningitis outbreaks and how the vaccine caused it. And so he merely says this, and this is taken as Bible. And so then I read the journal report on the hip meningitis outbreak in Africa, and it showed the thing he leaves out is that the, the meningitis outbreak was existing before anyone was vaccinated in the area. And it seems like that's what they're doing. And I have to mention Andrew Wakefield because it seems like his name comes up still to this day. I would think by now, 30 years of the global uh, scientific community has disproved all his ideas as far-fetched. I mean, he started off with Crohn's disease. It seems like he's a guy because we have to talk about him because I think he's very dangerous still to this day, in my opinion. So here's a guy It seems like he failed to prove that Crohn's disease was caused by something in the gut. Then he failed to uh, prove that uh, measles vaccine was causing Crohn's disease. So he said, oh, you know what I'm going to say? A measles vaccine is causing autism. How's that? Oh, great. I got a response finally. And now he's still pushing this idea. And it's just it's just so aggravating. And I think, like, just I have to mention because 
It just seems like he does. They, 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 a lot of the anti-vaccine, they're, they're picking and choosing from a New England Journal of Medicine or any NMA review what they want, and they're not letting you know the whole story. And I just see like that's happening across the board. And so when you see people reading these things, like, what, 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 how do you like how, what? What can we do to stop? There's nothing we could do from people reading these things. But it's just aggravating to me, especially in a social media environment that we live in today, that people are clicking on these things and they're sending me these arguments based on these YouTube videos that are leaving out the truth. And it's just, it's... So here, here I'm going to surprise you with this answer. Uh-oh. I, I think Andrew <laughs> Wakefield, in a sense, has been good for science. And oh, because he, uh, he pushed us to be harder. Here's why. So, so he, he, firmer. He, 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 in... in in 1998, he publishes his paper in the Lancet claiming Lance. that MMR causes autism. Yeah. So it raises the best thing you can say about that paper is it raises a hypothesis. And yes. so 18 studies have now shown that hypothesis was wrong. Okay. And that's not just that he was wrong. He was fraudulent and wrong. I mean, he misrepresented clinical data. He misrepresented biological data. Um, he, was he had a patent on a safer vaccine. Um, he had received uh, the equivalent of about uh, 400,000 pounds, roughly $800,000, to launder legal claims through a medical journal. I mean, he had received that money without the knowledge of many of his, his uh, co-investigators. Uh, uh, yeah, I read that, because it was and, a control, based on lawsuits against vaccine, provided right. him the information or... Right, and he also, he had some of those patients who actually developed signs and symptoms of autism before they'd ever gotten the yeah. MMR vaccine, but he sort of fudged that in his paper. Nobody likes a fraud. And as a consequence, his paper was retracted. As a consequence, he lost his, his license to practice medicine. I think when the anti-vaccine people hooked themselves to his star, and he came crashing down, and he's come crashing down, yeah. I think they all, at some level, came crashing down with him. So, I mean, the last time Andrew Wakefield, who initially was feted, right? I mean, he was, he came to the United States, he was on 60 Minutes, he testified in front of Dan Burton's committee, Office of Government Reform. I mean, he was the guy's attractive, well-spoken, British accent, all yeah. worked for him, yeah. and, and the last time he has had any sort of national appearance was on Anderson Cooper's uh, 360 in 2011, where Anderson Cooper tore him a new one. I mean, he was just, he, he just went, he basically called him a fraud in, 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 on national television, and that was the end of Andrew Wakefield. So he's yeah. been on the Alex Jones show, which is where you go oh, when you're a conspiracy <laughs> theorist, right? And, yeah. and, and that's been it for Andrew Wakefield. And so I do think, I think the anti-vaccine people, were many of us burned by him. I think the media was burned by him, because they really also were attracted to him, and then saw that he had misrepresented data, and that he, he had certain sources of funding that were not open to people, and that he, was, he in theory could have, in theory, made money off of a quote-unquote safer measles vaccine, which was never going to happen. Because the current measles vaccine is safe, so I think I think that he I know it's going to sound crazy. I think he was a a cautionary tale for I think the media, a catalyst for everyone really saying no. We're we're going to even prove we won. If maybe you are right, but it really got everyone across the globe to say let's see if and and obviously unanimously. Proven, like you said, and, and he's measles, a fraud. Measles outbreaks occurred because of that, because of the way that we saw it go up in story. London and, right. and Denmark and, and, deaths. and all, all deaths. That, deaths. That's what really disturbs me. Yes, I mean, you can argue that paper killed children. You can reasonably yes. make that argument. Yeah. Now, we're, there's a lot of people with dirty hands in this. I think the media, at some level, is responsible for carrying this in any way as fact. 
Um, I think that the journal was, was, was complicit, or, or at least can be blamed, for publishing such a thin paper. I mean, they tried to mediate it by having a, uh, a Bob Chen uh, and Frank Stefano have a, a, an editorial that said, look, this isn't a proof. I mean, there's no control group. This is at best a hypothesis. I mean, but that didn't do it. I mean, the media ran with that story. As is understandable, right? We didn't know. We don't know the cause or causes of autism. Here's a man who offered a simple cause and cure. Here's the cure. Don't give your kid the measles vaccine, and they won't get autism, which obviously isn't true either. Wow. So today, uh, again, in the autism uh, realm of, of research, I have just read something that uh, they think one idea, a gene SCN1A, uh, could be responsible for autism. Is this true? Is this something you've heard? That there's a particular gene. Uh, so, so, so the SCN1A gene is a sodium channel transport gene okay. in, the, in the central nervous system. So there is a disorder called Dravet syndrome, D-R-A-V-E-T syndrome, which is is essentially that. I mean, the first year or two of life, you know, you have developmental delays, you have seizure disorders, and and that's Dravet syndrome. Okay. Um, and and but no, I don't think. I mean, there, there today to date there are a lot of people actually working. Josh Gordon at the National Institutes of Mental Health, I think, has probably the best sort of information out there. But Hack and Hack and Orson here at our place at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia looks at the genetics of autism. It appears to be that there's four major genes associated with with, with uh, autism, which is to say that you're if you're autistic at five, you're autistic at two, you're autistic when you're born. You are born with autism, even though the the signs and symptoms may not become evidence until you're sort of one to two years of age. It is clear that you are born with that disorder. It, it, there's not environmental, it doesn't develop at a certain it, age. It, there's not environmental factors that, that affect it after you're born. Now, there are some environmental factors affected before you're born. In, in the first trimester, if you've had a rubella or a natural you know, a German measles infection, that increases your risk of autism. If you receive thalidomide, if you received an anti-seizure medicine called valproic acid, that does influence the, the uh, outcome of autism. But again, it's all first trimester stuff. So, so you can, uh, those, those are when developmental genes are being expressed. So you can in, influence autism then, but once you're born, you're, you're, you're either autistic or you're, you're not. So would you say that the, the correlation between the emergence of these symptoms or signs with those periods and those ages being when they begin to become vaccinated, would you say that's a huge element of why the immediately the trigger effect exactly is? Right. It's got to be the vaccine right. because, because they don't start to metamorphosis until... A lot of times they're getting their first shot. Or is that true? Right. Somewhat that's accurate. That's right. That's that's when you see it develop. I mean, the reason measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine was blamed is because typically you start to notice it between one and two years of age. That's when that vaccine is given. So I think that's why you 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 saw that uh, that outcry then. Now in France, I read there's another book I just read um, where it talks about how France doesn't allow Wi-Fi in kindergartens and nursery school, and their autism rates are far below that of the United States. I mean, I think the United States is second or third in the world, and France is like fifth or sixth. Uh, have you found, is that something true, that, that Wi-Fi and technology, and there's another, st- it said the EKG from your phone, is it's, it's radiation, and that's maybe affecting, uh, is there any... I think you're born with autism. You don't think that anything could happen at, no. at all afterwards, I even don't. as a kid? I don't. So Wi-Fi wouldn't be affecting you <laughs> in pre-K. Interesting. I, I have no response. I mean, now, you know what I wish yeah, would happen? Yeah. I wish that those who do genetics research, like you know, Gordon and National Institute of Mental Health or Hack and Hack and Arson here or others, the autism 
researchers, the good autism researchers, would stand up in the, in the in the world of the media and podcasts. And yeah, and that's and why say, Look, I'm having you here's on here. Here's what we know. I mean, yeah. my expertise is in vaccines. I'm an infectious disease expert. I'm not a developmentalist. Yeah. I'm not a guy who's done research on the genetics of autism. But there are many out there who have, and I just wish that they would step up to the microphone <laughs> and start talking. Yeah, because right now we the anti-vaccine it. people are doing all the talking. That, that, exactly. I think that's, they're, they're the loudest in the room at times. Because, again, whether it's a Google algorithm, like I said, you, you've definitely proven and you've said in all your books, yeah, Andrew Wakefield's been ousted for decades. But yet, still, when you click on Google, he comes up when you're looking into it. He comes up, like, almost automatically. And there's no one on Google saying, uh-uh, red alert, if you read this link, it is actually full of false pseudoscience. Uh, I wish there would be something like that on Google to say, hey, what you're reading is highly debatable by the scientific community. I think we'd have a much better society and a, a healthier society. Uh, and uh, So in, I guess in, in wrapping up, um, what about the arguments like I've read in Bad Pharma and a couple books like instances like why Pharma gave 342000 to American Academy of Pediatrics and 433000 by Merck to sponsor a vaccine and you have the American Medical Association has this ID system with 900,000 doctors you know they can get it, it that stuff gets sold to pharmaceutical companies so the pharmaceutical companies can keep track of the doctors and hey get, take this you know new medicine whatever and prescribe it and we'll pay you whatever you know what's your argument against stuff like that where there is a a pharmaceutical company that's sponsoring the development of vaccine. Uh, a lot of people will say, "Well, that's kind of biased. They're out to get. They're out to make money, and sh- they're sponsoring it." And then you have, on top of that, you have uh, another. I read in another book was like so many uh, reports and uh, medical journals and studies done on vaccines that out of a hundred, only nine of them get published, or six get published. That they're not even taking the effort to get the information out there. So those two sides of the coin, like, what's your response is? Okay, so while it is certainly true that pharmaceutical companies have acted um, unethically or uh, aggressively or even illegally and have been fined for it, um, that doesn't mean that all pharmaceuticals act badly all the time. I mean, if you're interested in making a vaccine, for example, only pharmaceutical companies have the resources and expertise to do that. I mean, I was part of a team here at Children's Hospitals of Philadelphia that created the strains that became the bovine human reassortant vaccine Rotatec, which was licensed for use in all children in this country by the CDC in 2006 and for all children in the world by the World Health Organization wow. in 2013. I think it's the professional accomplishment of which I'm most proud. But we weren't going to make that vaccine for hundreds of millions of children in our lab. I mean, only pharmaceutical companies have what it has the, have the money uh-huh. that it takes to do it. I mean, it costs over a billion dollars to do the research and development of that vaccine. We can create the strains, wow. but, but phase one, phase two, phase three trials can only be done by pharmaceutical companies. Now, now, you could argue that the pharmaceutical companies are a for-profit industry. They aren't going to make the vaccine unless they think they're going to make money off of it. Yeah. Absolutely true. But, but, but then it is possible then that because they're the only ones who can do the trials, because they're the only ones who have the expertise to do the trials and the money to do the trials. I mean, the, the, the phase three trial, meaning the safety efficacy trial of our vaccine, was, it was a four-year prospective, uh, 11 country, uh, $350 million trial. That was a single trial for, the, for that vaccine to be submitted to the Food and Drug Administration. Only pharmaceutical companies have the money to do that. So, now, 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 so couldn't maybe they'll lie? Maybe when they write their paper, which was written up in the New England Journal of Medicine, are they lying? I mean, they're the ones that did it. First of all, there's no hiding. 
if they if they choose to misrepresent clinical or biological data in, in those papers, there is no hiding. First of all, it's not it's not ethics aside, it's not good business to make a product that they know hurts children. Mm. I mean, because they're going to be found out. Because you've seen the lawsuits, like Johnson and Johnson, just this week is is finally but, but the, getting. But the, 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 the minute yeah, you're talking about for the the fentanyl, yeah, um, the the. In Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Wall Street Times. But, but, you know, here, there's something called the Vaccine Safety Data Link, which is an independent gr group that, that once a vaccine gets put out there, there's a link computerized medical record system that very quickly can tell who's gotten a vaccine and who hasn't. If there's a problem with the vaccine, it'll be picked up quickly. And if it's a big problem, it'll be taken off the market. I mean, the rotavirus vaccine, Rota Shield, which came onto the market in 1998, was taken off the market within 10 months when it was found to be a rare cause of intestinal blockage because there is no hiding. And sometimes, you, more importantly, you only find out about a rare adverse event post-licensure because pre-licensure, you're going to test, you know, 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 children, but you're not testing 10 million children. Obviously, that's prohibitive. So that only very rare events are only going to pick up post-licensure, and they're picked up by the vaccine safety data link. So... I only wish there was a, that, that on the drug side. I wish there was a drug safety data link. If there was, you would have picked up Vioxx as a rare cause of heart attacks much earlier. Vioxx, yes, I just read about that, which caused so, hundreds of thousands of people had heart attacks, and it so took you, a while. And then the guy who was a part of that pharmaceutical company just basically quit. I guess I'm not as quick to see pharmaceutical companies as evil <laughs> as everybody else. I mean, although certainly they can act evilly, and I agree, and I think they overprice the drugs. I agree with all that. I just don't see it on the vaccine side. First of all, vaccines aren't that big of a market. They're something you give once or a few times in your lifetime. They never compete with drugs that you're getting every day. So they tend to be a, a weak sister in these pharmaceutical companies. I mean, there, there were 27 companies that made vaccines in 1955. There were 18 companies that made vaccines in, in 1980. Today, there are four companies that make vaccines for American children. Wow. If they're so damn lucrative, how come everybody's bailing out on it? It's because they're not that lucrative. The research and development costs are high, and, and the, the generally the, the uh, gains are much lower because they're not given every day. And we saw so many uh, companies uh, collapsed in the 80s after, like, the Leah Thompson report. Yeah, yeah. We saw so many go out of business. And then that danger was, if there, at that moment, if there had been a big outbreak of anything. We wouldn't have been prepared. That we were on the verge of losing vaccines for America. And that report was wrong. Vaccines, that, that protested vaccine, although it had a difficult safety profile, don't get me wrong, did not cause permanent brain damage. As study after study after that showed. Lee Thompson was wrong. Barbara Lowe Fisher was wrong. Kathy Williams, Jeff Schwartz, the people who all formed dissatisfied parents together, were wrong. They raised a hypothesis that was wrong and ultimately disproven. So the, basically the argument with this idea, oh, it's pharma... They're trying to get you. You're basically saying they're spending so much money, it would be counterproductive for them to make something false and not working to scam the American public. You're basically saying it's just we split out stupid to spend all that time and all that money and a billion dollars to make something that it's it's just completely ridiculous to think. <laughs> Here you go, a fake vaccine to to weaken you when they just spent. That's basically you'll, the argument. You'll find out in a minute. Yeah. Whether or not, or very quickly, whether or not it's a problem. Wow. So why, so, so why do that? I mean, and also I just wish people would spend a little time with some of the people on, that make vaccines for these different companies. I think they'd see them as the human beings that they are instead of these evil, greedy bastards. But, so and now the element of, you, like you're saying, you need that money and that research facilities, whatever it is, to research a vaccine has to come from a pharmaceutical company. How, how can you change that? I mean, I think that's always going to be someone's argument. You're still having them involved. How can we take them out of the equation 
and and can, can you get state or federal funding to develop a vaccine? No. No. You can't, you can't just, take pharmaceutical companies out. Only they, frankly, have the resources and expertise to do it. I mean, the old adage, which is a joke that I don't think is actually a joke, is the government could never itself pass government requirements if they were the ones that had to do it. They don't have the, the, the expertise internally to do all that. So you have... You, you do have that in pharmaceutical, but again, there's somebody looking over their shoulder. When the vaccine is licensed and recommended and comes out, not everybody gets it initially. Some people get it and some don't. And when you have these linked computerized medical record systems, you can tell who got it and who didn't. And if there's a problem, it'll come up. And that's what happened with RotaShield in, in, uh, in, in 1998, uh, when that vaccine first rolled onto the market. And it was seen to have a problem, then they did formal studies and it showed that it really was a problem and it was off the market. That's what happens when there really is a, a true vaccine safety issue. So this vaccine system you said, there's the VAERS, which is the, what is it, the vaccine, vaccine Adverse Offense Reporting System? Yeah, that's right. But that seems to be pretty biased, right? Well, that, that, that's, that's not the same thing what you're no, talking about. That, that's different. So, so, what so that th is, this is what's on the National Vaccine Information Site, and it's right. a part of the Barbalo Fisher argument. Yeah, so, 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 so that, that's, a, that's a, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS, is a, at best, it's a hypothesis-generating system. So in other words, got a vaccine, had a problem, and so you report that to VAERS, but you're missing critical pieces of information. Exactly. Yeah, which is to say, got a vaccine, didn't have a problem, didn't get a vaccine, It's all negative problem. information. You, you need, you need it, it's, it's not, you know, a sort of rooster crows, sun comes up, rooster crows, sun comes up. You're missing the thing is, does the sun come up if the rooster doesn't crow? The answer is yes. <laughs> And that's why the rooster crowing does not cause the sun to come up. But again, you 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 don't get that information there. So it's a it's a lot of it's a very noisy system. And so oh, there yeah. are people who report deaths following vaccines. The question is, it seems that, all negative information. Cause? And so so Barbara Fisher and people like Barbara Fisher, anti-vaccine groups use that as proofs. See, here's all these these awful things that vaccines are causing when in fact they're, they're not causing it. So what is the system you just mentioned? The Vaccine Safety Data Link, the so VSD. The, now, where can uh, a regular person find information from that? Well, so those, those reports are generally published okay. in the medical literature when they do studies. So, for example, the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is at least a culturally, if not scientifically, controversial vaccine, that's been the most studied formally studied vaccine post-licensure. It's been studied in, in a million people post-licensure to look for a variety of rheumatologic diseases or chronic diseases to see whether or not, you know, it causes chronic fatigue syndrome or POTS disease or fibromyalgia or any of the other things, chronic pain syndromes, chronic fatigue syndromes that people are worried about. And it doesn't. And those are all published studies. So you can look in the medical literature to find that. I guess if you're going to do Google, at least look under scholarly articles. And that's, oh, and that's something I look as a screenwriter and researcher. Google Scholar, someone does, most people don't even know that that that's an alternative. That's actually the best way to get your facts. So is there a website or anywhere someone could click on a go to to the the uh, other system you mentioned? Vaccine Vaccine Safety Data Link. Where can you get usually, that? I'm not it's not it's it's the, the data are generated usually in, in academic institutions and then published. So so where you get that is in published papers. But there's no composite website that says not, not this the, is the latest reports on this vaccine, both sides of the coin. As opposed to Varus, which is just all negative hysterical information or feeding the hysteria. So I, I think that would be an interesting idea if there was some website. Yeah, but you want data to be, be sort of thoroughly vetted and then ultimately published. I mean, yeah. I think that's the best source of those data.
as compared to raw data. But you basically have to do that research yourself. That's well, the, that's what I'm getting. Just, at. You can go online and look at published papers. I mean, if you're worried yeah. about HPV vaccine, I mean, on our vaccine uh, education center website, what we do is we have, if you go to our website, you'll see on the home page it says vaccine safety references, oh. and then you click on that and you see all the things people could have possibly been concerned about vaccines, autism, oh, okay. you know, diabetes, whatever. And then you click on that, and then we have all the relevant papers with a two or three sentence summary of that paper to try and, and answer people's questions. We try and get good information out there, as a number of groups are trying to get good information out there, to combat misinformation, combat the stuff that people like Barbara Fisher does. Because, because what Barbara Fisher does is causing people to make bad choices based on bad information that's putting their children in harm's way and occasionally results in suffering and hospitalization. Yeah, so, I, so there has to be a force that counters that, and I, we are one of those forces, as are others. And what is that website you just it's called, it's called the vaccine. Just look at the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It's vaccine.chop.edu. Chop is just Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Vaccine.chop.edu. Okay, well, that, that's great to know about. I think people, people need to hear about that, definitely. And uh, I guess uh, uh, wrapping up, um, you know, we've had the Geyer family. Mark Geyer and David Geyer, they pushed something called Lupron, right? I mean, this is disgusting. And I think I just have to mention this to everyone listening. So Lupron is a castration drug. And so there was an idea for a while that they basically were proponents of that too much testosterone is causing is causing autism. And they were charging $12,000 to have someone be tested to see if you were right or not for Lupron. I mean, what's your reaction to that? And, and how... How are people like them, if you're seeing accountability and you're seeing a correlation between deaths, how can they not be prosecuted for these basic crimes against families, people, parents with autistic children that are going through hell because it is difficult and they don't have the answers? How do people like the Geyer family get away with this? So, so medicine has limits. I think autism is one of those limits. We don't clearly know a cause or cure. So when people like the guy are stand up and say, I know what it is, it's essentially extreme maleishness, right? And so so Because there's mustaches. They say there's a lot of mustaches. So, on so therefore young. by treat by using anti testosterone drug, we can treat this. We we can treat it. You see, modern medicine doesn't care about you, but I do care about you. So come come to me. And so it's very seductive because you know, as a parent of say of a child with autism, you want to do everything you can to help your child and they offer False hope. I mean, they are part of a cottage industry of false hope. And they have this conference every year in Chicago, and it's just oh, all. And do they ever invite someone like you or any? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was invited once to speak to that. You, and what happened? And they said that they would provide protection. This was not like a great. Oh, that's in the book, right? Where they just start <laughs> screaming at you, right? No, no, I never went to that conference. Oh, okay. No, so they're not even looking pass. for a bias or scientific-based experts. They don't. I don't think they're interested in hearing that. Because, like you said, it's an industry. Yeah, I mean, go go to that conference and you have all these cures for autism. And you, you, there's another one I looked up. It's on like uh, Barbara Fisher's site or one of the Facebook pages for uh, mineral baths or some kind of bath. And then you look on that link and you find that the studies show that this is ridiculous. It doesn't even work. But they're 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 selling it and people are just clicking on. Thank you so much. These are they're, they're quack fests. <laughs> and so, final final thing, chiropracting. Uh, and it's it mentioned a little bit in your books, and a lot of these books I found just unrelated. It just seems like they're a huge catalyst for people. I mean, I've experienced it personally where a chiropractor, uh, a, room, a classmate from high school, is leading this wave with links to all these webs. And I've been battling this on social media for now four months, which is what led me to read, read your books and all these books before I even stumbled upon your books. 
why? Why are chiropractors such a huge catalyst for this anti What What is the explanation for why? I mean, it's going back year. you know, the formation of a chiropractor said, oh, your deafness is caused by your spine. And there's always been a little bit. I've had chiropractor works for me in some ways, but I would never, ever prescribe to them being the experts on whether or not I should get a shot or not get a shot. Why are chiropractors such a huge part of this equation? I, I think, again, modern medicine has limits, and people who are sort of part of the alternative medicine industry. Complementary alternative medicine, CAM, right? Homeopathy, yeah. Yeah or naturopathy or chiropractic sort of set themselves up as you know, mainstream medicine doesn't care. They don't know what to do about this, but we do. And so come to us and we'll help you out. And so I think rejection of vaccines is something that links all those alternative practitioners often. Wow. It's a rejection of modern medicine. Somewhere. And that's really what the basis is. It's just for whatever reason, you want to reject it, you're into homeopathy or whatever it is, and you just don't want to, you think it's money, a conspiracy, and that's why my chiropractor knows better than me. It's just so bizarre that it's just they're such a huge part and they're not I wouldn't call them uneducated people but it seems like across the board for 30 years they're a real big uh, foundation for the anti-vaccination movement well uh, thank you so much dr. Paul Offit. is there anything you want to just mention promote uh, uh, again uh, a research center here or just Anything you want to just kind of plug for the right reasons, obviously, to well, save no, the world? <laughs> no, yeah, I think our Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital Philadelphia does try and provide good information, good, up-to-date, accurate, science-based information about vaccines, which, if you're interested, please come see. It's vaccine.chop.edu, chop is C-H-O-P. Um, I think you'll be able to find information that's helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you. And there's no zombie virus. Don't worry about it, guys. <laughs> Bye.